Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. My name is George. This is a very special episode. I am very pleased to introduce you to our very special guest, Nick Freitas. Nick is a man who has dedicated his life to furthering the values that have made this country great. Um, on so many levels, I respect him um, and have learned so much from him just across the internet, seeing his speeches uh, and talking with him directly through this episode. So what you're going to get in this episode is direct from Nick, his views on how we save this country. His answer may surprise you on that one. Um, it's not through politics. We cover many other topics like his military service, founding his family with his wife, um, their marriage, how they've instilled values into their children. And he gives a great deal of advice that is very direct to fathers and men in general um, for how to take back our country, how to be um, an authentic man who lives with masculine values in our current day and ultimately how to be the best version of yourself. So you're really gonna love this episode. A humongous thank you to Nick for his time and for his entire team working with us to make this episode possible. Um, I, I know you're really gonna enjoy it. We thank you so much for all of your support. Do yourself a favor, follow Nick on all of his different platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Spotify, et cetera. Um, he is Nick J. Freitas on all of those platforms and he has the podcast called Making the Argument. And then do us a huge favor before you start this episode, please go to your podcast platform of choice, whether that's Apple or Spotify or Google, you name it. Please leave us a review. Um, we really believe in the mission that we are bringing forward in terms of helping fathers and equipping men to be the best version of themselves possible because ultimately we believe that changes our country, that changes legacies, that changes bloodlines, and we are very passionate about that. So if you share that passion for fathers and helping men, please go give us a uh, subscription on YouTube and then a um, review on the podcast platform of your choice. All right, enough from me. Let's get into the episode. Thank you so much for all of your support. We love you all, and we hope that you really enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Our guest tonight is Nick Freitas. Um, Nick is a former Green Beret combat veteran, and he is a current delegate in uh, the legislature in Virginia. I know I messed up the title there, so you can correct me in a second, Nick, <laughs> on that one. Um but he's also the host of the podcast called Making the Argument, and we are very thrilled to have him. So please welcome Nick Freitas to the show. Nick, how are you doing, man? Doing really well. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, it's a real real privilege, excuse me, and uh, just very excited to get to speak to, with you on all the things that, um, you know, really why we founded this podcast, um, all the cultural issues that are stacked up against men and fathers uh, specifically. And I know that you share a lot of the same passions that we do. So really looking forward to learning from you in this one. So um, if you could start, introduce yourself and, and a little bit about your family, and uh, we'll go kind of into when you, when you started in the army and go from there. Sure, sure. Well, I, um, so I'm, I've been married to my wife, Tina. We were uh, high school sweethearts. We've been married for 24 years now. It'll be 25 years uh, next May. Uh, we have three children. Uh, my oldest daughter, Lily, is 20 and uh, actually engaged. So she'll be getting married uh, next June. And then my uh, son, Luke, is 17. And actually, I, gosh, I can't believe I just said he just turned 18. Um, 
he's he's actually oh, man. Going, yeah i know i know he's <laughs> gonna be going i have two adults now he's gonna be going into the uh the army most likely next year and then uh, my youngest daughter Allie, is about to turn 16 in december so it was an interesting year for us my my uh <laughs> my son turned uh my, my oldest daughter turned is turning 21 my son turned 18 and my youngest daughter is turning 16 so it was kind of those you know Big a year full of yeah. milestone milestone birthdays but uh, yeah. So yeah, Tina and I got married, um, again, pretty much right out of high school. I, I, I enlisted in the army, uh, actually enlisted in the national guard when I was still in high school and then, uh, went active duty. As soon as I graduated my senior year, went off to, uh, gorgeous Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, to go through army infantry, basic training, uh, was assigned to the 82nd airborne division as my first unit. And, um, then served in the uh, 25th infantry over in Hawaii and then first special forces group, uh, the couple tours over in Iraq. But yeah, Tina and I got married, uh, less than a, less than a year out of high school. Um, and had all of our kids when, when we were in the, uh, when we were in the military and we've been living in Virginia for the last, uh, 13 years now. And where are you a native to? So originally, originally I'm from Northern California and, uh, and yeah, don't tell my constituents here in Virginia. (laughs) No, uh, we grew up in a a really beautiful, nice little, little place in Northern California called Chico. Um, and it's way up North and everyone. So you say Northern California, people go, Oh, San Francisco. No, (laughs) San Francisco is the Bay area. That's not Northern California. And I, we grew up in a, an agricultural area. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that was, uh, the, our original, uh, we're both Tina and I were, were born and raised. Outstanding. So um, let's talk a little bit about the army. You did say you became a father while you were in the army, I guess all of your children. So, um, you know, how was that experience, especially uh, you were a Green Beret at the time, I assume when, when they were no. born? No. So it was all before. I, no, no, it was a little, it was a little bit of both. Uh, okay. So my, <laughs> we, we got to, so I was in the 82nd airborne. I, I got there in 98 and, um, kind of went through, you know, obviously went through like air assault school, sniper school, ranger school, that good stuff. And then I was going to reenlist because we had one battalion that was going to Kosovo. And at that point, that was the only game in town. So I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to reenlist and I'm going to go one battalion over and, and go to Kosovo. And my Sergeant major got like really upset about that. He's like, we've paid for you to go to ranger school. We paid for you to go to air assault school. You're not, you can reenlist, do what you want, but you're not going one battalion over. So I said, all right, fine. And, and I was going to get out. I was going to get out. I was going to go be a cop. My dad was LAPD. Um, and I remember coming home and, and my wife was like, you know, babe, we, we really haven't planned to get out of the military. Maybe we should save. Why, why don't we do one more, you know, one reenlistment. They'll let you go wherever you want your first reenlistment. I said, all right, you want to go to Italy or Hawaii? She goes, I want to go to Hawaii. So we go to Hawaii and like three months later, 9-11 happens. <laughs> I remember looking at her going, well, babe, I know what I'm doing for the next decade. <laughs> Right. And, uh, so I waited for, we, we were, I was waiting for the 25th infantry to deploy. That didn't happen as, as soon as I wanted it to. And then I actually lost two friends. Uh, one guy I went through basic training with one guy I went through ranger school with, uh, very early on when a, when a, uh, helicopter went down in Afghanistan, this is like really early on. Uh, they're both ranger regiment guys. And so I told Tina, I was like, well, babe, I want to, I want to volunteer for SF. I'll, I'll let you pick the group. She wanted a group closer to home. So I ended up, uh, picking first group and I ended up getting it. But, um, no, we had our first daughter, um, before I left the 25th, uh, at Tripler army medical center. Uh, we affectionately referred to it as Crippler, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Tripler, Tripler army medical center in Hawaii was where we had our first. And then we had our other two kids when I was in first group over at Fort Lewis, Washington. Gotcha. So you had children before your first deployment then? 
I had my, yeah, I had my daughter and my son had uh, just been born before I went on my uh, first tour. Yeah. So uh, this is something I can't really relate to because I deployed and then became a father. Um, Did that, how did that change your outlook as a soldier? Um, Oh man. Um, Knowing now that you've got little ones at home, not just a wife waiting on you. You know, there's this, uh, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen that um, Mel Gibson, is it Mel Gibson? Um, Mel Gibson movie, the Patriot. Um, and there's, there's this scene where they're in like the South Carolina, the equivalent of like the local legislature or whatnot. And, um, and Mel Gibson's character is kind of arguing against this idea of, of like being too hasty and going to war. And he has this line where he says, well, you know, this, this world be fought on our home front. Our, our children will see it with their own eyes. He goes that, you know, I, I have a wife and children, you know, w- w- what is to happen to my kids if I go to war? And the guy responds that wars are not fought only by childless men. And it, and it's, it's absolutely true. But by the same token, when you're, when you're overseas, um, you still have a job to do. And um, I had two kids, my first deployment, my third deployment, I had three. And I remember my, my youngest daughter, um, I was very blessed to be home for all of the deliveries. I was very blessed to be home for all of their major first, like first Christmas, first birthday for all, except for my youngest daughter. I missed all of her first miss first birthday, first Thanksgiving, first Christmas, first, I, I was gone for all of it. Um, but I remember this, there was this one, there was this one operation we were doing, uh, in 2008 and we were, we were out there, you know, green berets operate, everything is by through and with, you know, the, the indigenous forces. So, six green berets, about 25 or 30 regular uh, Iraqi army, about another 25 to 30 Iraqi militia. And we're just doing kind of a check on this one house, which we knew was a bed down location for, for a pretty bad guy. And uh, next thing we know, grenades go off the whole deal. And um, we got two Iraqis down and I was actually the senior NCO uh, for, because we we're doing split team ops. So I was the senior guy for the green berets. Uh, on the objective. So we, we secured the objective. We're going through, we're trying to find it. And, you know, most of the operations that we had done had been very intentional in the sense that we weren't surprised. We know what we were doing. We, you know, stack up on the door, you know, do, do your thing. Right. This was one where, again, we were still ready, but we weren't anticipating a firefight. Um, and so it, it happened for, we secured the objective. Um, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is in, in that moment, everything was, was reacting to a situation that took place as opposed to us planning a hit where we were going to go after a high value target. And there was this one moment where I thought that this guy had gotten away. And so we've, we've got our, we've got our court on and we've got our perimeter in and it's the Tigris river is on, on one side of this. And this this little house right by the Tigris. And it's like really thick. You don't expect it to be this thick in Iraq, but right up against the, the river it is. And so we, there's this little hidey hole. I, I find this little hidey hole and it's me, one of my interpreters and one of my Iraqi militia guys. And it was this point where there is no good way to go into this. There's not, it's like one way in one way out. Um, you're hoping Fatal the guy's either gone or dead, but there's no good way to do it. And, and I remember sitting there in that moment, I got all the time in the world to think about it because we've got our perimeter set up. I got Apache gunships going up and down the Tigris, but someone's still got to go down that hole. And I remember, I remember having enough time to think about it. And one of the things that went through my mind was how do I explain to my son if I don't do my job right now? And, um, and, and it was kind of, you kind of come to the conclusion that 
look, I, I can either jump down in here and, and whatever happens happens, but this is my job. Or I can try to come up with, you know, I can try to make it somebody else's job. Yeah. And at that point you kind of realize like, you know what, I, I can live with whatever happens next, but I can't live with being a coward. And I sure as hell can't raise my son the way I want to raise him. Um, if I know that about myself. Yeah. So it, it's, it's definitely hard. You're thinking about your kids. You're thinking about things you're missing. You're thinking about your wife when you're overseas, but um, you also, you, your obligation is not only to your country, your obligation is to the people that love you to be <laughs> in, in a, I guess in a way worthy of uh, the respect and admiration that they hope they have for you. I love that. That's good. It's uh, it's really heavy stuff too. You know, I think a lot of us don't really have to grapple with those thoughts. Um, well, I mean, less than what, less than 1% <laughs> have had to grapple with that. And then even with that, you know, I deployed before I had kids. So, um, that's, I love the way you put that though, where, uh, you had to really kind of wave like, well, how can I face my family if they know that I didn't, you know, do it, do what needed to be done. So well, that'd be the crazy um, part. They'd never know, but you would. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's the, uh, they call it the, you know, the burden of command. Yeah. yeah. You were the senior guy too, so you can't really pass the buck on. <laughs> no, it's not, not without being a really complete part of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other good oh. thing about being in a in a in a unit with a bunch of, you know, type A males is everyone's like, I want to go in first. <laughs> right, right, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so you were in the army about eleven years, right? So what what was the uh, deciding factor then? Because you know most people will say, oh, you just coast your last, you know, nine at that point to get the retirement so what was the uh the kind of catalyst there for the family to yeah. switch out of the military lifestyle it, it, it was crazy because i i had a man i had a good thing going right <laughs> i um i was a i was a star first class i probably would have gotten master sergeant within the next couple of years just because height of the war sf promoted very very quickly it's not i wasn't anything special it's just you, you know we didn't have enough sf guys and you promoted quickly and, and i i always wanted to be a team sergeant that was going to be i wanted to be a team sergeant in combat that was that was kind of my professional military goal uh because i just had a lot of respect i, I had this um team sergeant named mike klangenberg who he was my first team sergeant great guy total hard ass right but part of my language but um really just just made, made me a made me a better operator um and I was like, you know, I'm, that's, that would be, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a Sergeant major one day. I, I don't want to you know do anything like that, but I, I'd love to be a, a team Sergeant. And here I am right at that point where I had gone to this course called Sephardic, which was um, a, a close quarters battle uh, course that they, they run you through within SF and, it, and it's a pretty intensive course. And typically speaking, if you've gone to that, you have a very good chance of being in what they call, what they used to call the canders and ex, uh, commanders and extremist force, the SIF teams. And, um, and that was, that was kind of a prestigious, you know, team to be on and no guarantee that I would have, you know, gone to that, but it, it was definitely an option at that point. And, um, I remember talking with my Sergeant major when I had, I had, um, had the chance or had the chance to think about it. I decided I was getting out and he came up to me and he goes, you know, Freitas, you know, why, why are you doing this? I said, I said, Jerry, we just had one of the most successful tours we've ever had. I mean, we got the number six target in Iraq. We got the number one Sodaf North target. I said, and yet I got to fill out a 42 page PowerPoint to be able to get outside the wire, right? I get, I get all these permissions to go out and do my job. And then, oh, by the way, when we did our job and when we did it successfully, because the guy that ended up being hiding in that hole ended up being the number six target in Iraq. <laughs> I said, when we get it successfully, I get kicked out of battle space 
because the conventional commander that was running that area was mad that, you know, he wasn't invited to go play along on that mission. Even after we explained that, like, dude, we weren't going to get that guy that day. This was anyway. And, and Jerry, who I really respected, great, great, um, great operator, great guy. Jerry looks at me, he goes, Nick, that's, that's a BS answer. He goes, if you don't like something, you stay in, you gain the rank and you fix it. I said, oh, that's interesting, Jerry. You're a sergeant major. How many of the problems you've been able to fix? And he had some choice words for me. Um, <laughs> and at that point, it was no longer Jerry and Nick. It was Sergeant Major <laughs> and, and Sergeant Fred. Right. <laughs> but, um, but, he, but he conceded it was a good point. I said, Sergeant Major, the problem that we're facing right now is not with guys in uniform that aren't doing their job right, even though we got some of those guys. Um, the problem that we're facing right now is we got a whole lot of guys in suits in Washington, D.C. that don't know what the hell they're doing. And at that point, I didn't necessarily think I was going to get involved in politics in the sense that I was going to run for office. I just thought that I wanted to get into some space where hopefully some of like my experience or, or whatnot could either go toward informing people on policy um, or at the very least help get the, the right sort of people elected to where they could have a positive impact on policy. And so that's that's kind of where we made the decision that we were, we were going to get out um, of the military because... It, it was, it's one thing to, again, it's one thing to ask men and women to go overseas and to uh, risk everything for, for a mission. It's uh, something entirely different to tell them to go overseas and do it and then tie their hands while they're doing it. And then as we saw with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, which was um, just an absolute disgrace and a, a slap in the face. Um, quite frankly, we, we have a, we have a government that I think uses men and women's lives very cheaply. Um, yep. in the military, unfortunately. And yep. so we didn't get out because we, we got out because if we were going to fight, we wanted to be allowed to fight. And because we thought we might have a, we might have the ability to change the way some of those decisions were made. Yeah, I can, uh, I can definitely relate to having hands tied. I was a field artillery officer, so I was an FSO Yeah, and, uh, had PID from multiple sources with an Apache looking right at dudes dragging a mortar up a hill and we were denied yeah. clearance. And I'm like, and then an hour later, my fellow, you know, guys in the company are getting shot at on the other hilltop by mortars. And I was like, why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> my no, one job is to literally do that. And yeah. anyway, super frustrating. Um, so I can definitely relate on that front. And for me too, uh, a, a big part of it was just family. I, I looked ahead at what the next, you know, 15 plus years were going to require of my family, even in training, even when you're not overseas. And I was conventional army. I wasn't uh, soft. And, uh, I was like, this is a, it's a bad bargain for them. You know, I don't want to make my family pay that price. My, my wife uh, and I had a very interesting conversation on a satellite phone in Bangladesh <laughs> because I had, I had got back from my first tour in Iraq, um, had to go to advanced non-commissioned officer course. Then I had to go to the 18 Fox course. So this is my downtime, right? This is my home time. Right. And I'm, I'm back at Bragg doing training away from my family. And then I have to go on a J set cause we've got to go over and we got to train, uh, you know, Bangladeshi border guards. And then when I'm over there, I get an opportunity to go to Sephardic, which was a pretty incredible opportunity. And um, yeah, we had, we had an interesting, my, my wife has, has just been phenomenal. I, I, I always tell people the reason why, the reason why um, coming home was so seamless for me, because it wasn't for a lot of guys, uh, was because my wife absolutely went out of her way every single time to make sure that the kids, you know, they missed daddy, but they were proud of daddy. They were too young to know what was going on. And, and there were, there were other people that took this a lot harder, but not my wife. My wife made sure that, no, look, 
your, your daddy's over there serving and we're serving here at home by, by supporting him and having his back and praying for him and, and everything else. And I, I just, I can't give my wife enough credit for the, the good relationship that I had with my children early on, because that could have gone very, very differently. Um, and it is entirely because of the type of woman she is. That's really beautiful to hear. And then I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, she was that strong for you and, and for the family um, through all of that. Cause you're right. That is, uh, not always a given. Um, I know a lot of, a lot of people who don't have that experience. So, um, I guess final question on army stuff for me, and I'll, I'll start kicking it to the other guys here is, uh, um, one, I'd like you to talk a little bit about, you know, what you guys did after the military and kind of how that transition went for you. Cause that's usually an interesting story. <laughs> Sometimes it gets a little crazy, but, um, the final question I had on army stuff was at what point did you start really explaining to your kids, you know, what you were doing or have been doing? in the past um oh, you know because like my daughter's eight now so she asked like so were you in the war daddy you know so you're yeah, yeah. And stuff. And it's kind of like man i don't know how much or little to tell her and that's something yeah. i've always kind of struggled with because i don't want to lie to her um but kind of making it age appropriate and it's, it's always such a difficult topic too i don't want to be like the type of vet who never talked about anything yeah you know? yeah uh, well, I, mean, I, always, I always tell I, one of the things i tell veterans whenever i'm speaking to groups at like memorial day or veterans day or or, or whatnot is like if you don't tell the story it's not that the stories aren't going to be told They'll just be told by people that have no idea what actually happened. They'll, they'll be the college professor. They'll be the, you know, the reporter. There'll be somebody else that, you know, sat close enough to see the fight, but not close enough to get any blood on them that want to tell your story. And so it's really important that you tell your own. Otherwise, they'll never hear it. And I know that can be difficult at times. And I think age appropriate is, is the right way to put it. Now, look, I, I don't pretend that my tours were like just, I mean, there, I knew guys that were in Mosul in, in the tough years. I know guys that were in Sadr city in the tough years. Um, and, and look, they, they had a different tour than I did. I mean, I think we went over there, we got a lot of targets, we did our job, but we didn't lose any guys on the team. And, and I, I'm so thankful for that. Um, you know, I, I lost friends, but it ended up being on later tours and, and other deployments. And, um, so I, I think it's important for them to, to, you know, understand kind of what you were doing on just a basic level. You know, when they're really little, it's like you were going over there and you were trying to protect people and you were trying to serve your country. And when they get a little bit older, my son and I, obviously we've, we've had a lot of conversations. He wants to go infantry. He wants an airborne contract. Um, so we've talked a little bit about what that means and what the job is. Um, and, and I think, again, I think age appropriate is, is, is the right words. And, and there's certain things you spare them from and, until they, they have the spiritual, emotional, and, and intellectual capacity to be able to handle the story. And there's other things that they don't necessarily need to know. Um, I, I think they, they need to know enough to understand why it was important um, and, and why what you did was, was necessary. Um, even if, and, and I've had plenty of conversations with my kid, my, my kids all know that I have a huge problem with American foreign policy. Um, it's not as if I think we've all made wonderful decisions. The, the point is, is that when we were over there, I still had a job to do and there's still good you can do from that job. And so I, I think explaining that is, is important, but yeah, I mean, there, there may have been, look, there may be things that you experienced or whatnot that are not necessarily things, um, you know, your kids need to know about. Um, I think that's something to pray about. Um, but, but definitely Definitely tell the stories. Definitely tell the stories. Thank you. Appreciate that. I yeah. And Nick, yeah, that's a great point. I work in medicine and I don't agree with everything the American uh, you know, medical system does, but 
I know that I can still do good within the system. So I don't yeah. throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Sure. Um, but I wanted yeah. to talk about something you mentioned earlier. I'm going to butcher the quote here, but it's something like old men dine in comfort while young men die in the battlefield, right? We see that situation over and over. Um, I read a book called Skin in the Game uh, by a philosopher named uh, Nassim Taleb, if you're familiar with him. And his concept was that... Um, people in Rome, for example, like your podcast from a couple of days ago was awesome. Really enjoyed that. Um, they had skin in the game. Your, uh, your generals were often on the battlefield, your emperors even sometimes fought on the front lines, right? Whereas now our leaders are never on the front lines, right? So talk to me about skin in the game and how that's changed kind of the dynamic. You as someone who's fought on the front lines, what's going to be different about the way you engage in politics versus someone uh, like myself who has not, you know, been in active duty? I, I think there's a lot of ways that I mean, first of all, there there I've heard some people say that, gosh, anybody that serves in office should have, you know, should be a veteran or whatnot. I totally disagree with that. Um, I don't I don't think it's a necessary prerequisite. I think it can be a helpful prerequisite, especially depending on on what level of government that you're serving at. Like I serve on state government. I don't handle a lot of foreign policy. Um, but I but we do handle veterans issues. And so there's been times where I've been able to use that experience to be able to say, hey, look, this is this is why I think this is relevant or, or why this might be important. So I, I think what it really comes down to when we talk about skin in the game is really, really trying to identify um, based off of your experience and, and based off of what do you have to lose, right? And like, what, what is what is this going to cost you? Thomas Sowell, who's one of my favorite people ever. Um, he likes to say that there's there's nothing more stupid you can do than take the decisions, uh, take the decision making responsibility out of the hands of the people to make a pay a cost for the decisions and put it in the hands of people to pay no cost for making the decisions. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's one of the reasons why in government I'm constantly trying to get decisions out of the hands of of government because there's no possible way everyone can have you know infinite knowledge about all the ways that their decisions are going to impact millions of people. And, and so there's a certain degree of humility that I think is, is necessary. And I think a certain degree of humility that actually comes with being in a position or in a field of whatever it is, it doesn't have to be military or law enforcement or first responders, whatever it is, there's a certain degree of humility that comes from actually being in the trenches, wherever that trench may be. It may be the classroom. It may be the operating room. It may be the investment room, right? It may be wherever it is, you're going to have unique experience in that area, in that zone that's going to be able to inform the decisions in a way that somebody reading about it is just simply not going to be able to appreciate on the same level. And I think that's, that's really important. I think the other thing that we're starting to see within our society uh, now as well is this idea that you can have a certain amount of subject matter expertise and that counts as real world experience. And those two things are not necessarily the same thing. Someone can be academically very, insight or, or a very uh, um, knowledgeable of a particular topic. That doesn't mean they've done it and they know what it feels like to do it. By the same token, there can be people that have a lot of experience doing something, but but don't have a, a, a much breadth with respect to their knowledge on a particular topic. All right. If, if you storm the beaches in Normandy, you know a whole lot about what it is to go down on a ramp, run up a beach where people are fine, where MG3s are firing you know, rounds at you. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the same experience as someone that was planning Operation Overlord. And so sometimes I think it's important for for when we when we look at having skin in the game, there should be a depth and a breadth to that. Um, but I do think it's important whenever whenever we're talking about potentially making decisions that are going to impact other people, either either having that experience 
or having enough humility to talk to the people with that experience to make sure that whatever your good idea is, whatever, whatever your thing that sounds good on paper actually works well in reality. Um, and, and on kind of like a larger cultural issue, what we're starting to see more and more now is, and, and this is really concerning, I think for young men, they're kind of checking out on, on a lot of those things when it comes to getting married, having a family, having kids. And if, if you have a generation of young men that don't see a future within a family structure, that's a lot of young men that don't have skin in the game with respect to your civilization. And that doesn't mean they're not going to do anything. Oh, they're going to do something. They're going to find purpose and meaning. There's, there's a really interesting quote I heard. I think it's an African proverb that uh, a guy named uh, Rudyard who runs this show called What If Alt Hist. And, and he has it in one of his videos talking about the uh, coming backlash. And he says, there's an old African proverb that says that if you don't give young men a place in the village, they will burn it down to feel its warmth. And that's the part where, where I look at our society and our culture and where it's going right now. And, and that's the sort of the, the lack of skin in the game that I'm concerned about. That's such a good point. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So Nick, would you say that's kind of what has inspired you to continue to serve our country as a delegate or are there other inspirations that have kind of done that as a cultural thing? What would you say? Oh, it's so serving as a delegate was primarily about trying to get government back within what I thought its proper role was. So again, my, my, my faith um, informs my worldview and my faith tells me that there is a God and there is objective truth and there is objective morality and there's a created order. Amen. And part of that created order is understanding the proper duties and responsibilities and what I call like the various provinces. So you have the province of the individual. What are your individual duties and responsibilities? Spiritually, emotionally, professionally, physically, et cetera. Then there's the family. Then there's the civic organization, the church, and then there's government. And what I started getting more and more concerned with uh, was this idea that government was constantly inserting itself into those things, which were the province of the individual, the family, the church, the civic organization, and assuming for itself powers and authorities that I did not think were appropriate and which I think are ultimately destructive. And so my, my whole purpose of getting involved in politics was, was to make an argument for why government may have an important role to play, but it's supposed to be very, very limited and, and specialized. It, it's not supposed to be this, this wide breadth of powers where it's constantly interfering in your day-to-day -day decisions. And so that's what motivated me to get involved in, in politics. What motivated me to get more involved on, on kind of the cultural aspect that I saw going on was learning the, <laughs> it, 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 and it's not something that I wasn't aware of, but again, experience, having skin in the game uh, taught me a whole new perspective on the idea that politics is downstream from culture. And we're in the situation we're in right now, not because we didn't elect the right people. We're in a situation we are right now is because I believe a particular narrative has essentially captured most of the culturally shaping institutions that we have within our country, whether it be media, academia, public education, arts and entertainment, Hollywood, and now increasingly even the church. And so the, the reason why I started talking more about the role of what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a father? Was not so much to, to give people advice on how to do it as much as it was to share perspectives, insight, because I'm, I'm at an age right now where I have some experience with it and, and I've, I've seen where I've screwed up and I've seen where I've gotten things right. And I've seen what the results of both are and wanting to share that as part of a larger overall message, especially to both young men and young women. But obviously I have, 
I have a lot more experience being a young man. Um, to to essentially say that, look, this is a um, getting married and having a family is not just a nice thing to do. I, I would argue that for the vast majority of us, not everybody, but the vast majority of us, it's actual, it's absolutely essential. Um, yeah. Not just for you, not just for your family, but I would argue just for civilization. Right. And and then it and it is hard, and it's supposed to be, but it is it is worth it on a way that I just can't explain to someone that hasn't experienced it. And so I, I try to do the best I can on relaying those stories and those experiences so that people will have, have the courage to take it up and, and do the things that are necessary, develop the capabilities that are necessary uh, in order to take on that mantle and take on that role. I know exactly what you're talking about, Nick. I, I really do care more about the future after I had my son. It made a huge, it's a subtle shift where yeah. Now I've got some skin in the game. I've got a kid and I need to make sure the future is good for him because he's going to be there. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. There's such a lack of accountability. There's a degradation in morality and reality and truth uh, in the nuclear family. The nuclear family is being attacked on all sides. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's dissuading young men to getting in a family because masculinity is toxic now, right? You can't be masculine. You can't, you can't raise a family. You can't be the leader of your household. It has to be 50-50 and your wife has to say everything or you're just a controlling, obsessive yeah. troll, right? And so yeah. there's all these, yeah, there's all these absurd things and it's just a complete degradation of the Western society culture and as a whole. And so my question to you is, if America is heading um, this direction, how do we course correct, right? Um, yeah. what, are we the next Rome? Yeah, no, it's it's a good it's a good question. We we did a two part series on that on our podcast, and one of the things that we focused more on is everyone talks about the fall of the empire. I'm like, dude, you got to start with the fall of the republic. Why did that fall? And um, I, I think one of the things that's that's problematic, and and you see this a lot within political discourse. You'll always hear this conversation about our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. And I think increasingly, when people hear that, what they think is, oh, you're talking about your democracy, not mine. <laughs> um, but here's, here's one of the reasons why I believe, and, and this isn't conspiratorial, I just think it's, it's based off of incentive structures. One of the reasons why politicians like to talk so much about democracy, 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 is if it's the, the key defining feature of the United States or if it's, the, or if it's synonymous with, with freedom is because when you're thinking about democracy, you're thinking about politics. And when you're thinking about politics, you're thinking about the people who are in charge, which are politicians. So it's beneficial for politicians, for people to be thinking that the primary way that you achieve effective change within society is through politics, because they're the ones that control the power in that situation. The most impactful thing that you can do to save your country is how you raise your family. Like that, This is not debatable. This is not debatable. The reason why we're in this situation right now is because, in, in large part, we have a, we have a generation of younger people that, that grew up within academic institutions and with entertainment um, environments with very, very little parental influence on, on their decision-making process, on their exposure to ideas. And people always say, well, no, parents should take a handoff approach. You, you don't want to indoctrinate your kids. Like, okay, your kids are going to some degree, you know, come into contact with some form of indoctrination. The question is, is it, will, will it be by people that love them and want the best for them? Or somebody else. And, yeah. and your public school does not, you know, care about your kids more than you. At least they, I hope they don't. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's not a, that's not necessarily a ding on them. That's just a reality. And so, so the real question is, is that if you want to affect positive change, well, then my question is going to be, what are you doing with your kids? Or, or how, how involved are you in their spiritual, emotional, physical, um, educational development? Like how, how involved are you in that process? And then what are you, what are you both protecting them from? And then what are you also exposing them to? Right. Because, you know, protecting your kids doesn't mean you, you, <laughs> protecting your kids doesn't mean you save them from every bump and scratch. It does mean you try to protect them from the scars. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you, you don't want them. You don't want them being forced into decisions. They're going to have lifelong consequences. Right. When they're not at a, when they're not at an intellectual maturity to be able to handle that, but you do want them to be able to kind of test those bound, test the boundaries of their skill and their knowledge and to explore that and to be able to push forward. But you're, you're doing that within that, that environment as a parent where you have some control over that situation. So you're preparing them to be well-equipped to go into those environments when you don't have control over the situation. And so that's one of the most important things that we can do right now. But I I will tell you this, and I make people mad when I say this and and I'm sorry, like my, I can't say this enough. My intention is not to offend people or make them mad when I say this, but what I have seen, as a parent, what I have seen as a member of the education committee in the Virginia House of Delegates, if if the primary source of education for your child is the public school system, you are probably going to run into a lot of problems with respect to the way your child interprets reality, the way your child interprets their responsibility within reality, and the way you manage your relationship with your child. Because what you've done at this point is you've outsourced to a different authority. Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's an administrator, maybe it's their friends, maybe it's the social media app that they spend all their time on. You have outsourced the significant portion of responsibility for teaching your child how to think about the world and interact with it to those sources. And none of them are, should be as invested in your child as you are. And so that's number one. You, you can change the course of a country in one generation if you have enough parents doing that. But unfortunately, what I see is I see a lot of parents, even conservative parents, even Christian conservative parents who share my worldview, where they will, they will delegate that responsibility or delegate large portions of that responsibility to someone else, and then they'll go out and get really super involved in politics. You're not saving this country the next election cycle. Yeah. The, the politician is, you need, you need good representatives. You need peop, good people in, in politics. But that's not the most fundamental thing to saving your family or saving your country. That starts with the family. You, you have to begin there. And, and here's the good news, right? If you start with the things that you control, like, you know, how am I educating and raising my kids? And you start with the things that you control with respect to how am I... You know, you know, how am I investing? How am I running my business? How am I working? How am I becoming more resilient? How am I becoming more uh, physically capable? How am I becoming more professionally capable, intellectually capable? These are all things that you can control because as I, I was just telling a group of college students last night, this ideology that has been foisted onto people right now, especially younger people, that is resulting in exponential growth with respect to mental illness, depression, uh, a lack of people getting married, a lack of people having families. A lot of these people that have bought into this and actually think it's a positive course of action, they are going to wake up one day. Hopefully, it's in their early 20s. For some of them, it won't be till their 40s and 50s. And for some of them, they'll never wake out of it. But the vast majority of them are going to wake up one day and think to myself, what have I done? I was lied to. This this is not supposed to be this way. And And if all we're doing 
is making an argument and telling them, hey, the stuff you believe is a lie. The stuff you believe is a lie. The stuff you, okay, great. Are you pointing to truth? And not only are you pointing to truth, can you actually demonstrate it in the way that you're living your own life? Because people will hold on to a convenient lie and, and never let it go if they don't actually think there's a real alternative. Yeah. But that same person growing up in that environment that just feels like the decisions are just not panning out and they're looking around and they've got a friend that's got it all together or you know, they're seeing other people that just, man, what's different? They will start to ask those questions. And at that point, there, there won't be any social media influencer that will be able to will be able to to defeat the power of a life lived well. And, and yeah. one of the things too there is that you're, they're not they're pursuing the truth that their peers will give them, right? And they're they're not taught logic or critical thinking because that usually comes from the father. Um, oh, it's it's, of- it's worse at this point. It used to be that we could argue that they just weren't teaching critical thinking. Now, and, and again, some people get upset when I say this. I'm not trying to make overly generalized statements here. Sure. In, in many circumstances, what you see in pop culture is not just them not teaching critical thinking. They're teaching that critical thinking is a tool of the racist patriarchy. Yeah. And then what it does is it actually subverts the narrative, the lived experience of the oppressed to the benefit of the oppressor. It is one thing to, to have someone be ignorant of logic. It is another thing for them to think logic is bad. And that's what we're running into now. It was the party's most essential and final command. You have to ignore the evidence of your own eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. I know. Yep. Or, yep. Or, or will right we're, now. Is like we're going to need a whole second episode just on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, hey, I wanted to just follow up on the culture thing. You said it was, you know, politics is downstream of culture. And I've seen you reference Nerd Roddick before um, talking about culture specifically. And him and, his, and the group, the Friday Night Tights and that kind of stuff, they talk a lot about how really the early warning signs of all this stuff is yeah. in movies is in games. And, you know, as conservative Christians, that's an arena we have totally failed in. We have stuck out. Oh, that's, that's child's play. That's kids stuff, you know, comic books and all that kind of stuff. And the, not to get all nerdy or whatever, but we kids like that stuff, right? Oh, yeah. They're watching cartoons, they're watching movies. And so we have totally given up this arena where the other side where you know they're saying don't believe your eyes has has co-opted that entire system and so it's no surprise that you've got an entire generation now that's been brought up watching all these shows and movies and games espousing all these woke ideologies and parents are totally blindsided by it and it's like well this is why you need to pay attention to what they're playing or watching or listening to um it has gotten so easy even like the schools they're they're definitely trying to inject this into childhood stuff yeah because they oh, can I, get just, I just did a FOIA request for schools in my district based off of books they have in their library. And I have just found some that I'm telling you right now, there's going to be some issues. And, and I'm not talking about some, you know, edgy literature. No, I'm, I'm talking about blatant pornographic imagery. Um, so, yeah, if, if you're not sitting there and, and watching shows with your kids and, and not understanding what it is that they're consuming on a regular basis, that's very problematic. Now, here's the here's the good news, right? Because so much of this sounds like doom and gloom. The good news is, is that if you are actually taking that time with your kids, and I don't mean like sheltering them and not letting them watch anything except, you know, I, I don't know, 
80s Christian movies. Which were <laughs> veggie cool. Tales. Only Veggie Tales. <laughs> 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 good, yeah. We watch we watch Star Wars with our kids. We watch John Wayne with our kids. Well, I, I was there's three was, Star Wars movies, just to be clear. Yeah, no, no, no. That is absolutely <laughs> there's there's three no, Star Wars movies, and there's three more where it's like eh, and then there's the travesty that we will not even mention. There's Star Wars and then there's Disney Star Wars. Yes. You know? That's, yeah. Um but so my, my son and I, we used to love watching those, you know, and I watch and, and then with my girls, we used, I'll tell you one of the, one of the greatest decisions my wife and I ever made, and we made it totally accidentally was when I was still in the service, we, we had, uh, for a while, we did this thing where whenever I was going to be gone for a while, we'd each pick a book. We had, we, we got turns picking a book and, um, but it had to be a classic. That was the rule it had to be a classic. So I picked something cool like the Count of Monte Cristo. And we both read that when we were apart and we would like get on the phone and talk about it. And then she picked Pride and Prejudice. Dude, Jane Austen is brilliant. Like I'm not even like, I, I give no apologies. Jane Austen is brilliant. Um, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. I mean, let me tell you how bad this got. And I promise this is going somewhere. I was at an Irish pub in Colorado Springs with like SF buddies, military buddies, the whole deal. And they were having trivia night, right? They're having trivia night. And we're just sitting there. We'd had a long day at work and we're just, we're having a Guinness, right? Having a Guinness sitting there and um, we're, we're all sitting there not paying attention. And all of a sudden on the trivia, it comes up and goes, name the Jane Austen books that don't have and in the title. And I'm looking around and everybody's scratching their head. And I walk over to this table. There's, there's a, a bunch of ladies sitting there. I'm like, it's Emma, Northringer Abbey, and Mansfield Park, and I was never here. <laughs> I walked back over. <laughs> but the reason I point this out is because when my kids were little, right, when your kids are little, they want to do and they want to watch what mom and dad are doing if you give them the time. It, it is fascinating how much time your kids want to spend with you and not with Blue's Clues or whatever else, Paw Patrol, if you, you want to sit down and have the time with them. And so my girls were, they watched BBC adaptations of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And I'll, I'll never forget when my, my, she was 12 at the time, my oldest daughter, she's watching this other show and this man and woman kiss. And she goes, Daddy, I'm like, what? She goes, Did you see that? Would I see what? They just kissed. Yeah. She's going to lose her character. They're not engaged. And I was like, that is an excellent point. Oh you my God. Spot yes. on. She's like, no, you can't, right. you can't, you can't do that. Dad. Did you and mommy kiss before you were engaged? Who Never. wants ice cream? <laughs> Never. <laughs> the point is, is that you can have these shared experiences with your kids, which transcend. You hear this all the time. Like, oh, it's a generational thing. Some of my kids' favorite shows growing up was I Love Lucy, Little House on the Prairie, Gilligan's Island. You know, and we would watch this together. And they thought it was hysterical. They loved it. They never thought for a moment they were missing out on anything. But the value system were very different. Not to say it was always perfect, right? Not all the values in those old movies are perfect, but it's certainly not what you're getting on, again, Paw Patrol today. And so sitting down and actually investing in that time on the entertainment sphere, um, your, your kids will develop kind of an idea of what is fun in part based off of what they got to do with you. And so, again, my... So my daughter was in a play the other day, my, my, uh, uh, 15 year old daughter, she, she's in a play and, you know, they're all sitting around talking about what they were with, what they were doing. Like, oh, I went to the movies. Oh, I hung out with friends. She's like, I castrated my goat. <laughs> um, by the way, guys, if you really want to scare, you know, potential suitors for your, your boys, get your daughter a goat. And then, you know, 
Um, yes. Anyways, Notice. It's just to say that Notice. This, is, this is not an issue where you've got to sit there and just be, you know, nurse ratchet the entire time. Like, oh, you can't have that. You can't do that. But put that away. You can't have it. No, pick fun things to do with your kids. Yeah. Build those experiences with those kids. And, and you'll be shocked at, at how their idea of fun is so drastically different from any of their friends that were essentially raised by a tablet or raised by their, you know, their, their peers within a, a public school environment. Yes. And the public school environment, it, it kind of adds and not to upset people, but it does add to the problems. But to go back to what you're talking about, like with the nuclear family and our responsibility is not only fathers, but, you know, the mothers as well. And, and being a parent, I, I guess my question to you would be, how can we kind of counter some of this culture besides, you know, or, or what's the best way to, uh, I guess, teach our children to fight things like wokeism and, to fight things like term limits and and all the issues that we have going on in society today. I mean, we have so many different issues that are actually hitting us all at once that even as adults, we're like, how do we, how do we fight this? So yeah. I, I guess the question is like, how do we teach our children what they need to know in order to change the next generation's outcome? I guess. Yeah. Well, first of all, the dumbest statement ever uttered in, in Western civilization, let's just say the dumbest, we'll put it in the top 100, right? Is you shouldn't talk about religion list. and politics. Um, religion and politics are going to affect a, a, a significant portion of your children's life one way or the other. And so you better talk about it and you better prepare them. Um, the one thing that I, I try to encourage parents is, is to say that a lot of conservative and Christian parents think that they've taught their children how to think and what they believe when in reality, what they've taught them is, is an incentive structure, uh, you, you go to church and you behave, you listen to mom and dad, you repeat what mom and dad say about politics or about life or about values, because when you do that, you're rewarded, right? When you're, and, and when you don't do that, you're punished. And so what you've, what you've taught them is kind of like this arbitrary respect for authority. And so that works out fine, maybe when they're under your roof. What happens when it's a college professor is the authority figure now? What happens when it's a boss? What happens when it's a friend group? What happens when it's, you know, some sort of celebrity that they admire? The media. The, the media. That becomes the authority now. And, and so one of the most important things that you can do is, is teach your kids how to think and then teach them why you think the way you do about things. And then the next step for that, there's, there's two next steps. One is at some point you will do something. Your kid will catch you violating the rule that you told them was important. And at that point, what they're, what they're determining is, is the rule sacred in the sense that it applies to you as well, or is the rule arbitrary based off of who's in power? Because if, if your kid comes to you because they've caught you, you know, using a word you shouldn't have used or, or um, you know, overreacting to something or, or, you know, not thinking something through before you, you commented, and they respectfully, this part's important, they respectfully come to you and say, Dad, I, I don't think you handled that well. Can I talk to you about it? In that moment, every ounce of, because this has happened to me, every ounce of me wanted to be like, oh, oh, you, you, don't, you don't approve of the way the person that is feeding and clothing and housing you did something. Oh, well, do tell what from your 14 years of experience has equipped you to be able to provide this sort of analysis. Well, the answer is you. You equipped them to provide that sort of analysis. Do you and mind so sharing you, an example? Just Yeah, sure. I, I came, I've shared this one before I came home from work. I was really tired. Uh, I was frustrated. I was stressed out. I walk into the kitchen and my two youngest kids have just destroyed the kitchen. 
And this would not be the first time my two youngest kids have destroyed the kitchen. And I was angry. I was like, what have you, what are you doing? Um, you know, again, a lot of time in the military, a lot of time training. Uh, I can project, right? Like, what are you doing? Put that down, clean all that up, go to your room. I'm just, I'm done. I don't want to. And they started to try to explain, right? Like, I don't want to hear it. Just do what I say. Go to your room. I go back upstairs. My oldest daughter knocks on the door. Daddy, can I talk to you for a second? Yes, sweetheart. What is it? Daddy, I don't think you handled that very well. Okay. What do you mean? Daddy, the reason why they were in the kitchen is because mommy told them that they could make something for you. And so they were down there and they were doing their best trying to bake something for you that they knew that you would like. And when you saw the mess and you got mad at them, now they're too afraid to tell you that that's what they were doing and why. And I remember sitting there and first of all, you're feeling like an absolute jerk because, you know, your kids were trying to do something nice for you and you, you flew out the handle. Then you feel like an idiot because now you had to have your 14 year old daughter correct you. Then you feel even worse because she's right. <laughs> and, and there, but by the grace of God, go I, because there have been times where, you know, I've told my kids, Hey, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm too busy, whatever. But I remember in that moment thinking she had, she had the courage to come and knock on the door and ask to talk to me. She saw that I was in a bad mood. I could have very easily told her to go to her room too. She had the courage to challenge an authority figure in her life that she respects. She did it respectfully. The analysis that she used of my behavior and their motivation and the circumstances was spot on. I said, in this moment, one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to reinforce to my daughter that the authority that I wield in this household is not arbitrary and that the rules that we enforce also apply to me. Or I'm going to teach her that I'm just some sort of tyrant and you just better do what I say. And that's it. And so I, I remember looking at her, I said, sweetheart, I want to thank you uh, for coming to me. I want to thank you for doing it respectfully. You are absolutely right. I'm wrong. And I'm going to go apologize to your brother and sister. But I want, I want to thank you for having the courage to do that. And I, I have, like, to this day, I have a very, very good relationship or whenever um, my daughter is struggling with something or thinking through something or whatnot, we'll, we'll sit there and we'll talk about it. And um, I, I think it's, it's really important, especially if you come from a Christian worldview, and I do. The authority I have as the head of my household doesn't come from me. Exactly. It doesn't come from me. I, I, yep. I am a, I am a caretaker of that authority. Yep. My, my job is to utilize and exercise it in a way where my, my primary concern is the well-being of my wife and my children, even at the expense of my own well-being, should the circumstances of the situation call for it. And what I need them to understand about the rules that we come about is they're not rules because mommy and daddy says so. They're rules because there is a God and there is a created order. And these have been put in place for, so. our, for our well-being and our benefit. And my job as a father and our job as parents is to help you understand that they exist, why they exist, and why they're actually beneficial for you. But if the moment they see us violating it. They can't respectfully bring correction at the appropriate time. Well, then we've taught them it's none of that. It's just, I'm in charge. I'm bigger than you. I make the money, whatever it is. I'm in charge. Do what I say. 
And that is the last lesson that you want your kids to leave the house. Um, you know, so anyways, that, that's, that's one of the ways that I think you equip your children. The other thing, so that's the fundamental, right? The fundamental thing is to teach them the, why the, you know, objective morality, objective truth exists that that's built into our faith. And then it's about how to think and how to think well. And when you ask your kids questions and you, you give them scenarios and you give them things to think through at the dinner table or, or whatever else that is, it really, it becomes like a game of, okay, how would you respond in this situation? Or, or, okay, if someone said this, what, what would you say back? And when you, start to, when you start to develop that sort of communication with your kids, now when they find themselves in situations, many times they know how to answer. And then the times that they don't, the first person they come and ask is you. And that's what you want. You want them asking you, not TikTok. <laughs> um, and so when you've established that relationship, that dialogue, and that process of going back and forth, and they see it as a beneficial thing and as a fun thing, then they'll, they'll do it more. And, and that's what you want. You want when those difficult situations come, you want them to be prepared. And when they don't feel prepared, you want them to come to you to get prepared. Um, and at the times when you maybe don't know the answer, you don't make something up. You just say, that's a really interesting. Let's, let's think about that. Let's look about that. Let's, let's, let's consider it together. And that's what you always want because when they go to college or when they go off into the workforce or the military or whatever else it is, and they're faced with problematic situations, you still want to be seen as not only a safe harbor, but you want to be able to see as someone that will give them wise advice. And so, yeah. That's so Tick- good, man. Yeah. And and TikTok, was, uh, AKA China, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. I'm sure they have our best interests in mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you, you gave a great example of, um, I don't know if you ever read the book called tender warrior. Um, but kind of that he, he ta- highly recommend you should read that book written by a green beret who became a pastor after Vietnam. Um, okay. But, Great book, but you were you were talking there about how you know we we are the protector, but we also need to be tender in those moments. Great example of that um, with your daughter there. Just an amazing thing that everyone can kind of probably have a very similar experience already. And their you know if their dad they've had a similar situation and they either handled it right or they didn't. And so the, the beauty is you can learn from it and do better. So um, thanks for giving that very personal example. Can we flip to the other end of the spectrum now, where you need to be the warrior? Um, yeah, you've you've made some videos about how dads need to be dangerous. Can you get into that? Because I think, especially for Christian men, a lot of Christian men, they're they're very meek, and there are times where you need to be a lion. Um, and it's a balance. That's that's why the Tender Warrior book is so good. It, it's it's all you know biblically based. But um, I'd love to hear your perspective on, especially in today's day and age, where it seems like, you know, you're you're treated like, a, you know, a a total knuckle dragging brute. If you even dare to be a protector. Yeah. Until you're needed. <laughs> exactly. Right. Until society needs you. But when it comes to your family, you know, how dare you stand up for them? Yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't been in too many dangerous or violent situations when somebody picked up the phone and called the nearest gender studies major to show up. And deal with. <laughs> uh, so I, I think, I, I think one of the important things for men to understand is that to, to be, to be a warrior in the context of being a husband and father doesn't mean, you know, Conan. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry that there's coming a day very soon when that reference won't actually have the same you know, cultural meaning, but it, it doesn't mean that. Um, it doesn't mean John Wick, although that would be cool. Um, it, it basically means that you you take seriously that you do need to maintain a certain degree of uh, if you're if you're able. Like I always have to caveat this because someone will say like, "Oh, so a dad in a wheelchair can't be like." Okay, clearly we're not talking about situations where somebody it's has a debilitating, you know, yeah, the letter of the law. Yeah, but 
but if, if you're a husband, like the moment you decide I'm going to be a husband, if you don't look at that as I am now responsible for the physical safety of somebody else, I think there is something flawed in your reasoning. And, and I had a situation once where I, I was talking with a young woman who was engaged, you know, very well-educated. Um, and I was just telling her like, oh, I love being married. Being married is great. Congratulations. And we were talking a little bit about, you know, roles in marriage. And she goes, oh, <laughs> we don't subscribe to those traditional gender roles. I said, oh, that's fascinating. Can I ask you a question? She goes, yeah. I said, let's say you and your fiance, um, you know, we're here in DC. You and your fiance just went out to a nice dinner. You're walking back to the car. And then all of a sudden a guy jumps out of the alleyway with a knife. Now, in one of these scenarios, your fiance jumps in front of you. And in the other scenario, he jumps behind you. In which scenario are you more attracted to your fiance? And she goes, that's, that's not fair. I'm like, oh, I guess you just answered the question, didn't you? I said, look, can we just stop playing make-believe? You, you don't expect your man to be Conan. You don't expect him to be you know, the, the rock, right? You don't expect all that. That's fine. That's, that's not a reasonable expectation. You do expect your man to protect and defend you. You want him to. And in fact, if you don't have that expectation because you don't think he can, I guarantee you there's going to be an element of respect missing from your marriage that is not going to bode well for the relationship. By the same token, for I, I, young men get mad at me sometimes when I put a lot of onus and responsibility because I'll hear a lot of men nowadays talking about like, oh, it's just too hard to find a wife and it's just to this and just to that. I'm like, I get it. Like, let me acknowledge up front that culture has drastically changed the way many women see men and their responsibilities and their role within society. There's no, there's no question about that. Like I, I can definitely appreciate that that's problematic. Do you know what the solution is to it? Yeah. Strong men. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. The, the answer is always the same strong men. So part of your responsibility, if you want to actually have a wife, if you actually want to have kids is you need to stay in a, a reasonable level of physical shape and you need to have the mental capacity and the mental capability to engage in violence when necessary, right? Not going around picking fights or anything like that. But if your wife honestly doesn't think you could protect her in a fight, there's something wrong, dude. There's something wrong. Every kid wants to be able to tell their buddy, my daddy could beat up your daddy. Not because they actually want their dads to fight, but because they want to be proud that their dad is a protector. Okay, so... If you don't feel like you you adequately fill that role, there's some things that you can do to correct that, right? Go go to the gym a little bit more, lift some weights, right? You know, eat a little bit better. Like this is this is not just something you're doing too, by the way, for your physical prowess, right? Or for your ability to fight. Lifting weights is good for your mental capabilities. This is this is scientifically validated, right? Lifting weights is good for you. Um, staying in shape is good for you. Uh, another thing that I, I I tell men sometimes is like, look. You know, when my wife agreed to marry me, what that meant was, is I'm all she gets for the rest of her life for the rest for my life. Right. Um, I hope she doesn't kill me. Right. For the rest of, for the rest of my life, I'm all she gets. I want her to be proud of what she's got. Right. I want to be proud of what she's got. And, and so I, I think when you look at this, not so much from the, the idea of, okay, I've, I've got to be, you know, I've got to be some sort of, you know, Uber warrior to be able to no. But you should stay in good physical shape because that has a lot of benefits beyond just physical protection. Um, you know, 
being able to know how to throw a punch or to what to do in a fight is actually going to make you a lot more confident, not just within this series of physical, it'll make you more confident at work. <laughs> it'll make you more confident in your social relationships. Um, so I, I would tell, I would tell men that, look, take your, take your physical, um, um, you know, well-being seriously, you know, carve off the time that you need to be able to do that. I, for me, I love going to the gym in the morning. Uh, it, it just, it starts my whole day off. Well, it, it gets me going, it gets the blood flowing, it gets me thinking. And at, at, by the time, you know, 10 o'clock rolls around in the morning, I've already accomplished something that day. And I think that's also very, very beneficial. The other thing I started to do is my, my son who again, you know, just turned 18 a while back. He's, he's been like, dad, I, I want to do, I want to do martial arts. And I'm like, okay. So I, I found a gym where they do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and boxing. We do MMA. And I will tell you this, um, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu at 44, not quite the same at 25. Uh, you, you definitely going to want to stretch more. I learned that the, the hard way. Um, but this has been a great experience for me and my son to go through something where, where we're rolling around, we're learning how to fight. And it's, it's funny. He comes home one day and he tells his mom, he's like, he's like, yeah, I, 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 he goes, I got to work hard. Mom, I got to get back to the gym. I got to get, you know, I got to get, got to get back to MMA. I got to do this stuff. I got to work hard. And she's like, why? He just goes, I need to know if I can take dad in this prime. And, and I was thinking two things like one, I think it's adorable that you think I'm still in my prime. I really appreciate that. Um, two, uh, never going to happen. It's called dad strength. And you know, our sons can't beat us. I don't know. I can't beat my dad. My dad couldn't beat my grandpa. It's just, it is what it is. If he's got to learn the hard way, so be it. But, um, so anyways, take, take that, take that role and responsibility seriously. I, I don't know a single man that has decided to take that role seriously, whether it's maybe again, just lifting weights or maybe, you know, taking a boxing class or something like that. I don't know a single one that has regretted that decision. Um, so, yeah. So Nick, uh, along those lines, I grew up with a single mom, um, didn't have a dad around, you know, to kind of learn a lot of this stuff. You mentioned on a previous uh, podcast, building a legacy is an important part of a father's job. It's kind of part of his duty to his son. Talk about building that legacy when you don't already have one. I think it's a little bit easier to jump in on one, right? If you're, um, you know, King uh, John the Ninth, it's a little bit easier to know what your legacy is. <laughs> yeah. How do you build a legacy from scratch when you don't necessarily have one to jump into? Yeah. No, that's that's a good question. I um I, I was primarily raised by my mother. Um, I spent the summers with my dad, but I had great grandfathers and, and I have a great dad. Like I love my dad. My dad was still very influential in my life, even though I only got to see him, you know, three or four months out of the year. Um it it is a it is a very, very good question because I, I see a lot of men that find themselves in a situation. In fact, when I when I talked about legacy, I had people say, Yeah, dude, I don't I don't have that. I don't I don't know. I have no idea who my grandfather is. As far as my father, there isn't anything that man left me that I would want to share with anybody else. And that's the part where um, it's important to understand that, no, you, you still have a legacy. It just begins with you. You're the one that starts it. You're the one that has made the decision to change the entire trajectory of a family. I mean, you, you think about that for a moment because it, it, you're right. It, it is, it is easy to fall into a legacy and have something established to protect, to protect and to build upon. It's like, you already have something built in that, that you, you love and that you're concerned about. It's, but for you to get here, regardless of how you got here, there is a line of human beings that goes back for thousands of years, thousands of years. And, and now it's you. 
And it is shameful that the people before, whoever it was, didn't do enough to actually make sure that you had a legacy to practice or that you knew what that legacy was. But it is amazing when you think about it that potentially hundreds or a thousand years from now, somebody's going to look back and say, the reason why our family turned out the way it did is because somebody at some point made a decision that I'm not going to tolerate what I was given and I'm going to make sure that my children have better. That's incredible. I mean, in, in, in some ways, if you think about it, that's just what an incredibly powerful impact to have on generations of people you will never meet. So I always tell people, if you can't, if you can't look behind to something that doesn't mean there's nothing to look forward to, and you're going to be the guy that, that sets, sets the foundation for it. And, and that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. That's it. I'm motivated. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Thank you. Little twist on that question. Kind of part B of that. Um, I only have a daughter and we probably won't have any more. Um, how do you, how do you think that, you know, not that I don't leave a legacy, not having a son, but yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of guys who it's something I've had to wrestle with a little bit too. Like, mm, you know, my name won't pass on all that kind of stuff. Um, is that just culture? Is that just, you know, me being stupid or how does that play out also? You know, what, what's your take on that one? I think it would be totally disingenuous to tell, to tell another man, especially when I, when I have a son that like, Oh, that's no big deal. It's like, no, I get it. I totally get it. Uh, I, I will say this though. Um, the, the most important legacy I will pass on through my children is going to be their commitment to Christ. And, and that's not a, <laughs> it's not a gender specific commitment, right? Um, it, I'll put it this way. There, there is a lot of, there is a lot of cultural push for men, especially men that see their traditional role of this, of wanting to build that legacy and, and pass it on. The son passes on the name, but your blood passes on regardless. And most importantly, the values that you taught pass on regardless. And that's the real legacy. Like ultimately when, when I stand before God, he is not going to be concerned on whether or not my name passed on. He's going to be concerned on whether or not I glorified him in a way that impacted others. And I hope I live my life in such a way where I am far more concerned about what God will say to me when I arrive than what man will say about me when I leave. And so again, the, the, the importance of legacy is every bit as relevant with daughters as it is with sons. And it is every bit as important, I think, to the, the source of all value, which is, again, our creator. And so I, I don't, I, I understand it. I understand it from a cultural level. I do. I think from a scriptural level, there is no less importance either way. I agree. I just wanted to kind of, flip the other side of the coin on the sure. legacy piece. Cause it's no, natural no, it's, forever. I think it's natural for people to gravitate to the sons only. And absolutely. Um, no, it, so it, it's, you. it's a, no, I, I think it's, it's really important. It was, it was funny. My, um, <laughs> when my oldest daughter got engaged, um, her, her fiance's name is Nick. And, and I was teasing him. I said, well, you're going to take her name. Right. And, and my daughter was like, we don't need two Nick Freitas's. <laughs> like, okay. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, listen, what, what skills do you think fathers um, are lacking the most that are essential 
uh, for raising children that are going to be capable adults, right? Because um, we were talking about how like Dustin didn't have somebody. So basically he's having to pioneer, right? He's having to fight the battles that his parents did not fight, right? And so yeah. what are what are those essential things? I, I think so we we kind of break it down into categories. You know, there's there's the spiritual, the emotional, the intellectual, the professional, the physical. I think in, in all those categories, men have responsibilities just as men, and then we have responsibilities as husbands and fathers. And so the question is, is that how do I how do I develop those capabilities in each one of those categories so that I'm able to fulfill the obligations that I have? And then how am I able to pass on those skill sets to my children? And so the spiritual development, I think, is the most important because it's fundamental and foundational to everything else. And so knowing what you believe and why you believe it um, will help make sense of everything else that you do. And so if there's something off with that, if there's something wrong with that, it will typically ripple effect into the other categories as well. Um, You know, the, the emotional and the intellectual side are, are pretty obvious, right? Like emotionally men should be able to project power, we should be able to intimidate when necessary, but we should also be able to project tenderness toward the people that we love. Um, there's a side of me that my kids, wife and kids will never see. There's a side of me that has only been seen by a very select few people in Iraq. Right? Um, there's another side of me that my wife and kids see that nobody else will see. They might get glimpses of it, but not the way it is for them. And and so that sort of emotional maturity is, is really important. And and I'll I'll talk about one of the biggest areas where I have failed in this is that I, I, um, I have a temper and that temper doesn't result in like, you know, violence or aggression toward my family or anything like that. Sure. What it, what it typically does is it, is it causes me to, you know, um, not operate as effectively as I, as I could. And, and one of the primary sources of that anger is printers. I, I don't know what it is, but printers just deserve all of our disrespect and animosity. And there's nothing you can do to a printer that would make me feel bad. But, um, but things like that, developing that sort of a, emotional maturity to be able to be in control of y- yourself and your thoughts. And, and again, this is a biblical command, right? To, to take capture every thought. Um, that's, that's really important. The intellectual side. I think men, um, all of us have different interests and all of us have different um, kind of things that we go toward. But developing a, a kind of broad intellectual capability so you're, you're, there's going to be things that you specialize in, and those are going to be things that you're really interested in. I was, I was interested in, in critical thinking and political philosophy and economic policy, and, uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time doing that. As I get older, there's other things that I've gotten really interested in. I got really interested in gardening. When, when COVID hit and all of a sudden the shelves were bare, I'm like, holy crap, I never want my family to have to be completely dependent on Walmart to be able to feed. So I'm going to learn about this. And then, and then I started learning about other things. And so I, w- I would just say that the key to, to intellectual capacity is to have a very, very good foundation within critical thinking and an understanding of, of truth. Um, and then to never grow bored of, of learning new things. Yes. Um, it's actually, it's a really exciting process. I think one of, one of the biggest pet peeves I have with some elements of public school, and I know I, I, I'm not trying to bash on, on everybody in the public school system. I'm not trying to bash on that. It's just a system that I have a problem with is that I think sometimes it robs of, of, of our, our curiosity and our passion for learning because it's so focused on do this for this test and then you know here's your grade um, as, as opposed to just recognizing that we live in an incredible world and there's all kinds of ways to educate yourself, especially now. Um, so just never, never um, lose that hunger for education. And when your kids start to learn something that may be different than what you ever did, like my dad never cared about baseball. He learned about baseball because I cared about baseball. 
And then some of our greatest memories growing up with my dad are, are watching baseball games that he never cared about until I came along with an interest. Um, you know, the, the um, professional capability, right? We have to provide. And, and it's, you know, the, this whole, oh, go chase your dreams. Go chase what can feed your family, <laughs> right? And, and get that as close to your dream as possible. And, and, then, and then develop the skills and the capabilities to be able to, again, love the work that you do. But understand that there's value in any work that allows you to feed your family and take care of them and provide for them. Um, and then on, on the physical side, right, just keeping yourself in shape. Because in, in order, because again, if you want to be at your peak professionally and, and physically and emotionally or relationally, is, or the relationship is a big part of that emotional and intellectual component, and spiritually, well, then it does require you to take care of the body as well. Um, and, and so find the things that, that you enjoy doing that, that provide you that capability. But um, I, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of good mentorship out there right now that you don't even necessarily, I, th I think it's important. To, I mean, you guys have a core group of people right now, right? You're in what, four different states? We are. Yep. That is correct. I mean, yep. and, and you guys, for, for various reasons, you know, respect one another. You, you bring different experiences. You bring different things to the table. Like all, all of that is, I think another thing that is really important for men is to have that core group, right? This is my go to war group, right? These are the guys that, these are the guys that I can call them up at two o'clock in the morning and say, man, I need you here. And, and they're going to show up. Um, no I think that's, really, I think that's really important for, for men as well. Um, so yeah, th those are just some of the things that I, I would say is, as get those foundations in first, get them solid. Um, and then and start to start to build out and and just develop those capabilities over the things that you can control. We 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 focus a lot on things we can't control and it makes people depressed. And and a lot of times it actually drives them into stopping the focus on the things that they could actually make better. Yeah, and that's actually kind of all tied to to masculinity, I feel like. And and one of the things I wanted to pick your brain on was just masculinity and the idiot who decided to marry that word with toxic because there are toxic people. Yeah. And there are masculine and feminine women yeah. and men. And it's, it's like, I just want to hear your thoughts on the word masculinity and, and what do you think it means as a father and how that can kind of tie. Well, okay. So let's, let's, let's be as generous as possible to the toxic masculinity crew. All right. Let's just be as generous as possible. Let's assume that what they meant is that there are certain traits associated with masculinity, which if used in certain ways can be toxic. Okay, I got no problem with that. Now let's do femininity. Right? Like if you if you want to break it down according to these categories, that's absolutely fine. The the thing that I like to tell people is that okay, what are masculine traits? Competitiveness, aggression, um a capacity and capability for physical violence. Okay? Everything I just mentioned would be predominantly associated with masculinity. But they're all morally neutral. In, in that capacity in and of itself, they're morally neutral until something happens. So if my capacity for physical violence manifests itself in stealing someone's purse, yes, that is a, that is a evil manifestation of that masculine trait. If it manifests itself in me stopping the guy that stole the purse and giving it back to the nice old lady that had it stolen from her, that is a positive manifestation of a masculine trait. So. In, in the problem that we get into nowadays is that whenever a man demonstrates what might be considered a more stoic quality or, um, or again, that the, you know, competitiveness or whatnot, 
they don't label the negative manifestation of it toxic. They, neg- they, they label the trait itself as toxic. And then here's what ends up happening. The moment you say, well, okay, what if I, what if I help the girl get it? Well, that's not what I'm talking about. No, 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 you don't get to do that. They do this all the time. They talk in incredibly broad terms. And then when you call them on it, they narrow it back down to the thing that nobody disagreed with in the first place. And it's like, okay, what do you really want here? And, and I think what some people really want is the feminization of men. They see men as the problem. And, and you'll hear this sometimes. Okay, yeah, fine. There's some good men that protect women, but who do they protect them from? Other men. So see, the problem is still men. And I like to say, oh yeah, you're right. Because if we had a civilization comprised exclusively of women, there'd be no violence or conflict then. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, no such thing as female aggression. Like just because men have the capacity to, to engage in physical violence in a way that most women don't. And so therefore it manifests itself that way in reality doesn't mean if you took men out of the picture, there'd no be, there'd no longer be physical aggression anymore. Like, oh my gosh. So part of it is just, you know, getting people to understand, like, look, put aside all these culturally stupid terms. Like I I fight against them because I think they're ridiculous and I think they're, they're perverting the whole process by the same token. I don't like some people in what they call the manosphere that have now created this idea that no, 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 you know, going out there and having a high body count and having as many beautiful women as possible and doing this and, you know, forget, you know, that's, that's what being a man is all about because all the top G's and all the Kings, they had harems and they had cars and they had this. Yeah, and if you want to know what took down most of those top Gs, it was having harems, and it was you know, um, absolutely. So yeah, they, no, were, what, what, they were bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. Really. What we should be what we should be projecting right now, because the, the, here's that's the backlash that's coming. They told a whole generation of young men, "There's something wrong with you," and now we've got some men coming up going, "There ain't nothing wrong with you, man. You need to like double down on all of those attributes." And the problem is, is that a lot of people, especially within the Christian environment, I'm sorry, but if you're 125 pounds soaking wet youth pastor in skinny jeans is the guy that is trying to convince your, well, this is what biblical masculinity looks like. That ain't getting it done, man. That ain't getting it done, right? We, We need the sort of men that can be the tender warriors. They can say that, no, 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 your object of a man is not to go out there and have a bunch of meaningless trysts with a bunch of women. No, your, your job as a man is to go out there and find that woman that you love, that you passionately respect, that you can build a family around so that you can build the sort of men that civilization rely on. You can build the sort of women that civilization rely on. That's what your job is to do. And in order to do that, you have to be capable right? I want the dude, I want the dude going out there and telling everybody else, telling all these other young men, go out there and do all these things, which we know are immoral and self-destructive. When I show up in the same room with that dude, I want him to be scared of me, right? Not because I'm going to do something well, harmful he, to he him. He will be. Absolutely. It's all an act, right? It's all projection. I, yeah. I, I want him to be able to look over and be like, that dude, okay. That, that's, yeah. that's a real killer. Yeah, so it, it's it's the sort of thing where if, if we're gonna be if we're gonna be saying this is what biblical masculinity is, again, biblical masculinity is not like, oh, okay, you know, no. Biblical masculinity is I'm I'm respectful to women because I understand that they're beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of God. I, I'm I'm respectful to my wife, both for her own sake and also because I'm teaching in the way I treat my wife, I treat my son how he should treat his wife, and I treat my daughter how she should expect to be treated by her future husband. Right, these are the things that I do, and when we say it, we better say it with both passion and conviction because it works. But we also better be able to defend it not only intellectually, but we should be able to defend it physically. 
we don't want we don't want young Christian men to look at all of their you know male Christian mentors and think, okay, yeah, what they're saying might be true, but I'm I'm pretty sure a strong gust of wind could take them out, right? Like, no, be formidable. John Lovell's got a great book on this called Warrior Poet. Um, and John Lovell is, I, I mean, it just really massive amount of respect for that guy. Another guy that I, I really admire is Victor Marks. You want to talk about a guy that went through some stuff. Um, and, but is just one of these guys that exudes this idea of, you know, that, that, that gentle warrior. Um, and that doesn't mean he's always gentle. It means he's gentle with the people that deserve gentility and he's warrior with the people that deserve warrior and nobody's confusing it. Right. So that that's, that's what I would say on that. It's like, we got to show, we, we can acknowledge that there are certain traits that are both masculine and can be, can have really, really bad manifestations. And the way that you counter those is with the pop, the, the positive manifestations of masculinity. And that's what God commands us to be. But Nick, I'm confused. I was told that Justin Trudeau is the ideal male. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. oh man. I don't know. Oh gosh. There's so many jokes that just came to mind and none of <laughs> appropriate um, <laughs> we'll have to save him for uh oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so so one of the questions we always ask our dads that come on um when you close your eyes and you stop and you think about a core memory or your favorite fatherhood story what is that that you envision there oh gosh okay i'm i'm gonna probably um i'm probably gonna have to go with two if you don't mind um and and the, this is kind of crazy. My dad was a, a homicide detective uh, with the LAPD. And uh, again, I only got to see my dad about three, three, uh, three months out of the year. And, uh, but I would go down there with the summers and uh, every once in a while I'd be like, you want to come and come into work with me? Yeah. And you understand my, my dad is, my dad at the time was like five foot seven. Um, he was kind of a bigger guy, but he was five foot seven. He wasn't real tall. And I always kind of knew my dad as being kind of funny and, and sarcastic and the whole deal. And, and he definitely had a serious side. Like I knew my dad was, you know, a real man, but I, again, I, I saw the tender side, right? And we, uh, we go into the station. Uh, and I think this is when he was, yeah, he was working, I think South Bureau homicide. And um, we're sitting down and he goes, uh, and I'm just kind of sitting at his desk because he, Want to look at some crime scene books? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Good father, son time, right? And he gets, he goes, hey, I'm, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I'm like, oh, I, I got to go to the bathroom. He goes, oh yeah, come with me. So, so he grabs, he grabs the, uh, the pot and he's, he's walking over to the, the coffee maker and he shows me where the bathroom is. And as, as I walk back out, he's, he's got this pot of coffee and he's sitting there and there's this guy set up on the bench, handcuffed, tats everywhere. Um, pretty sure now, pretty sure he was, he was probably MS 13. And, um, and I kind of whispered to my dad, uh, dad, what, what is, what do those tattoos mean? And he goes, what? And he looks at me and he goes, oh, and he go, he goes over to the guy, he starts pointing at the tattoo and the guy starts to lift his head up and he goes, get your head down. And I like, I was like, dad, it's cool. Like we don't, it's like, I don't, I'm not trying to make anybody mad. He's like, get your head down. He's like, okay, so this tattoo right here means this. And this tattoo is with this gang over here. And, and it was one of those things that doesn't seem like a huge deal, but I mean, here I am 44 years old telling you about this story because in that moment, I got a glimpse of the man, the bad guys see. And it was like, whoa, okay. My that's dad's amazing. a badass. Right? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and part of, yeah. But so that, that was, that was uh, one story. Um, 
the other thing that was really formative for me growing up, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, was all of the times going over to my dad's dad's house because my my grandfather lived five miles away from me. And so I would go over and um, we we would watch John Wayne marathons on TNT and, and USA and, and whatnot. And then we'd go into the den because grandpa would want to smoke his pipe. And he would tell me stories of running away from home when he was 16 to join the Navy during World War II and working as a logger and working as a firefighter. And again, my, my, my grandfather, Bill Freitas, uh, was one of just the most beloved guys. Like everyone, <laughs> everyone just loved Bill. And again, he's like five, six, right? <laughs> um, but it, it was one of those things where he did a lot of, did a lot of mentoring for me without ever like us intentionally saying, okay, we're going to mentor now. No, he was just, he was just there whenever I needed him and, um, and willing to share those stories and, and there at the games when my dad couldn't be, uh, he's the one that picked out my wife. Um, when we were, we had a car wash at the high school and, um, and he pulled up cause he was going to support his grandson and, 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 and Tina was there. And, um, he goes, he goes, Nick, you need to, you need to date that girl. Nice. Um, you need to date that girl. I'm like, dad or grandpa. She's just like, she's not interested in me way out of my league. He's like, ah, no, no, that's, that's the one you need to date. And, um, it was funny. Cause when, when we got, when we did start dating and when we got engaged, um, this is the other side of my grandpa. <laughs> there was one time where again, my grandpa has been rooting for this girl and me to get together. And, um, Tina and I got engaged and, and like, she gave me a kiss and my grandpa's just looking at her with this look like, ugh. and she looks at him, she goes, what's, you know, what's the matter, Papa Bill? And he goes, Oh honey, nothing makes you sick. (laughs) 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 It was so both of those, both of those men, my other grandfather too, Papa John, um, was, was really influential as well. But, um, I got to see that tenderness of, of my grand, my grandfathers, um, and, and the wisdom and the stories. And then with my, with my dad, again, I, I, I got a dad that, you know, really worked hard to, to be involved, even though he lived so far away. Um, but man, I will never forget the moment I saw again, I'll never forget the moment I saw what the bad guys saw and it made a huge impression on me and, and it made me thankful. You know, sometimes people treat this like, well, well, gosh, weren't you scared? No, nope because I never got that look. I never got that look, but right. it made me feel safe that if anybody was ever going to hurt me, they were going to get that look. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a great distinction. Well, look, thanks for sharing those stories. Those are awesome. Um, like to switch it up with a little bit of an odd question for you. So if you could spend a day with anyone living or dead, who would it be? And why is it Thomas Sowell? <laughs> <laughs> so living, living, it would be, um, Okay, we're okay. Can we just? We all agree right now that we're not going to say the typical answers with you know Jesus, you know Moses. <laughs> all right, all right. So, um, living, yeah, it would it would be Thomas Sowell. I I don't fanboy about celebrities. I don't like. I, I've met some pretty important people, some pretty powerful people, some pretty famous people. Um, and, and I'm never the type to go over and like ask for an autograph or a picture or anything like that. It's like, Oh, that's cool. That's pretty. If Thomas soul walked in that door right now, like this would be over. Right. And I would be <laughs> understand. Oh my God. Like you would not believe. And like for the next, like 
for as long as he would give me, I would just sit there and ask him questions and like be taking notes and like, Hamilton, can we film this? Right. Like, like I, I, I admire that man so much. Uh, for the work that he does and the intellect that he is, that that would be, yeah, Thomas Sowell uh, would be, oh gosh, that that would be that would be pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, someone, someone dead. Um, gosh, I'd have to think about that. Okay, let me. It, it's always hard. You don't want to leave anybody out, right? <laughs> um, right. Frederick Bastiat. And and this kind of goes to my my interest in in political philosophy and, and whatnot, and and it allows me to to share the name of someone that isn't you know is, is commonly known within within the sphere. But Frederick Bastiat wrote a book called The Law, and he wrote a lot of other uh, books as well. Um, he was in the legislature in France in the in the eighteen uh, hundreds, and uh, died fairly young. But his book, The Law, is I used to buy that book a hundred copies at a time and hand it out whenever I would go talk to people um, because he did such an excellent job of breaking down complex concepts in a way that were easy to understand um, incredibly relevant, not only for the 18, 1840s France, but for today. And he's, he's another person that I would just love to be able to sit there and, and have a discussion with um, because again, his intellect was just incredible. And I would love to ask, I would love to not only ask him questions. I would love, I, I would just sit there and be like, how would you respond to this? How would you respond to this? How would you respond to this? Um, and then I would write all of that down. And then when he disappeared from our meeting, I would say like, look at all these great responses I came up with. So, uh, I love it. But yeah, that, that's, that's two people. I mean, obviously if, if we were going back, if we were going back into like biblical times and whatnot, there there's um, David. Um, David is one I'd want to, I'd, I'd really want to talk to Joshua as well. Mm. Uh yeah, because I, I think I think a lot of men kind of I think a lot of men kind of resonate with David. Um, we want to be that warrior. We want to be a man after God's own heart. But we also just wonder how like on some of the stuff he did, like, how could you? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I guess I've screwed up this whole thing because I, I list off like five. No, that's perfect. No, no, no. I was, no. was kind of just giving you as a joke because I know you're such a huge fan of Thomas Sowell. So <laughs> yeah. um, the, the real question was, I know you're a pretty funny guy. Uh, your shorts and stuff are absolutely hilarious. Um, you know, my wife and I will actually just sit there and scroll them pretty often. It's pretty funny. We get a good <laughs> laugh out of them. But, uh, you know, humor, I think a lot of dads err too, too far on like stoicism. Um, you know, what, what's your take on humor and, you know, how important it is for dads to just sometimes just have a laugh and be goofy with your kids and stuff. Cause if you're ser all serious all the time, um, it's not realistic, right? Real life isn't that way. You know, some things you just got to laugh at. So you're, you're going to do, kind of get your you're going to do damage to your kids if you're serious all the time. Right. Um, and I, I mean that very sincerely. Um, there, there are a lot of dads that think they want to play this like purely stoic role. And, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I can't say I, they can never see me cry and I can't say I love you. And, and like, you do damage to your kids. Nothing about that's biblical. Um, my, my, one of the things I really loved about, um, you know, my, uh, I love about my dad and loved about my, my grandfathers was how funny they were. I mean, they were just the, the wit and the sarcasm was so quick. Um, when, when my, <laughs> when my mother-in-law first saw my dad and I together uh, and saw us interact, she went over to Tina and said, are, are they okay? Like, are they, do they not have a good relationship? And Tina's like, 
no, they're like super close. It's like, why are they so mean to each other? And it was because we, we, my dad and I joke about this all the time. Like to, to this day when we, you know, you know, call each other up or whatnot, like we're, it, it's, it's a, a series of very, very witty, sarcastic jokes toward one another, but we still tell each other, you know, it, it, love you, love you too. Love you, dad. Um, and, and it's, and, and we mean it, right. We mean it. So I, I think the humor, I think the humor, and I think to some degree, healthy sarcasm is actually important. I think it actually teaches kids how to interact in kind of a funny way, how to not take themselves too seriously, how to sometimes not take, you know, bad situations too seriously. Like, how do you not, not to be irreverent, right. And, and not to be disrespectful, but at the same token, um, a little bit of laughter can actually bring uh, uh, a whole lot of calm and, and a whole lot of joy to, to a situation. And so uh, all of our kids, we, I, I am 80% of the time with my kids, I'm more like funny and jovial and, and sarcastic and, and, um, and, and they love it. And they've all, they've all, <laughs> they've all, developed a very, very healthy, uh, funny sarcasm as well. But again, it's not insulting. It's not mean spirited, um, most of the time, but, <laughs> um, but I, I think it's really important. No, I, I think humor is, I think humor is critical because it's, it's one of the ways it's also one of the ways that dads can kind of show tenderness, um, without feeling overly vulnerable. Because again, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to appear weak to our kids. Um, we, we need to be strong for them. And uh, jokes and joking around with them and and teasing a little bit in a way that's safe and fun is I, I think incredibly healthy. Um, so no, we we do that a lot. Of like, if you were to come over to our house for dinner, um, it would be nonstop us kind of like joking with one another, like you know, really friendly like jabs at one another and 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 things like that. And when my um, my future son-in-law uh, first came over. Um, it, it takes a little getting used to, I remember my, my daughter was actually in a, in a, uh, a car accident and it wasn't a bad one. Um, but she called us up and she was shook up a little bit. And so I went and I, I picked her up, dealt with everything, you know, you know, as soon as I came up, gave her a hug. Are you okay? Is there anything you need? You, are you sure? Okay. Went over, you know, talked to the, the sheriff's deputy, talked to the, you know, other car. Is everyone okay over here? Do you need anything? We came back sweetheart, do you want to talk about it? You know, how do you feel? Okay. And just like helping her kind of work through, this is what happened. This is, I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I, honey, stuff like this happens, you know, the whole deal. So like for the first two hours of my interaction with her after this happened, it was all tenderness, concern, empathy, sympathy, the whole deal. Her boyfriend comes over. And the first thing I say to him is like, you know, you, should, you better watch your girlfriend. She was kissing a steering wheel earlier and it's just a little weird. Right. And, and he was like kind of horrified at first. And, um, and Lily kind of explained to him, like, you know, my look for the first two hours, my dad was just sitting there and anything I needed and, and, you know, holding me when, when he got there and the whole deal, this is his way of letting everyone know that everyone's safe. Everyone's okay. It, it, nobody's mad. Nobody's angry. It's going to be all right. Stuff like this happens. And, um, but yeah, at first he was like, man, that was kind of a jerk thing to say, <laughs> but, um, and again, she did she did not have any injuries, so I wasn't making fun of any like you know, we didn't have to go to the hospital. We drove straight home. Right. So I think the humor is really important. Man, that's awesome. Um, final question here before we wrap up. What is the best piece of advice somebody has given you uh, as a father? Oh gosh. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to come up with a list of of answers to questions like this because whenever I whenever I'm asked, <laughs> I, I never I can never think of, of one something. of the best. Yeah. <laughs> um 
or maybe maybe reverse it and just say what is some advice you would give to a like a new father or to any father well i'll I'll put it i'll put it this way both as a as a father and as a husband i can't i'm trying to remember who was the first person to tell me this um because it's something i've told my kids now and it's something i told Ah, dang, it's uh, it's something I told the man that's going to marry my daughter. <laughs> um, it was essentially that if you don't love Christ most, you're never going to be able to love your wife, your kids. Um, or when I told it to him, you're never going to be able to love my daughter the way she deserves. And, um, for people that don't share my worldview, that probably sounds cliche. I cannot emphasize. I cannot emphasize how foundational it is to everything else I've talked about today. So that would that would be it. If That's you don't, if you can't love Christ the way He deserves, you're never going to be able to love your your wife or your children the way they deserve. God, that's good. That's beautiful. No greater love than this, right? Uh, yeah, beautiful. Love it. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm writing that one down. That's probably what I'm going to say. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for that one. Um, yeah. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, I've last couple of years for me have been years of uh, a lot of growth just in every aspect of my life, mainly with my walk uh, with him and so much of what was wrong in our marriage was because I wasn't pursuing Christ well enough. And <laughs> making that fix. It's amazing how a lot of problems have sorted themselves out. Um, yeah. So that, that's probably, yeah, the best advice that you could give in that scenario. So thank you for that one. Um, Nick, where can people find you? Not that that's a hard place to find you, but you know, for those who may not know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we, we made it pretty easy. Uh, Nick J. Freitas. Um, I know Freitas is not the easiest uh, last name to spell, but if you, you, F-R-E-I-T-A-S. Anybody types that into Google or whatnot, uh, you know, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, we, we put we put a lot of time on a, into our, our YouTube channel lately where we've we've tried to, um, you know, share some meaningful experiences on being a husband, being a father um, on our on our YouTube channel, which, again, is just Nick J. Freitas, our, our podcast, Making the Argument. We do uh, two live shows a week. We're probably going to be adjusting some of that um, in the future because I've, I've got to go into legislative session here in January. <laughs> um, but those are those are the best places to uh, follow us on on social media. Awesome. And then I uh, just wanted to kick it over to you for any closing thoughts or comments you wanted to leave with the audience. No, no, I I, I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, the, the biggest thing I'll, I'll say is, um, you know, a lot of the things that I, I talk about, I had I had somebody that's not a fan of mine. Um, tell me I was, I was being arrogant in, in some of the things that I say and, and the confidence from which I, I speak of it. And I guess the one thing I would just want to make sure that people understood is that, man, um, the, the, the confidence is, is entirely into just seeing things work. Um, there, there is none of what I talk about or, or my experiences and whatnot. Do I ever mean to be boastful or arrogant as if I've got everything figured out or have had it all figured out or whatnot. Um, when I, when I say there by the grace of God, I, I absolutely mean it. And I have been so blessed to have a, a wife um, that has, has really just prayed for me and, and worked with me in this marriage in, in a way that is just so meaningful and precious. Um, 
So the experiences that we share, both the successes and the failures, um, are, are intended to come from a, a deep place of humility and, and recognizing that, man, I, I, so much of this stuff I cannot take credit for. I am, I am, I'm really blessed to have been taught well by people that taught me and, um, blessed in those moments where a different decision could have been made uh, on decisions where I made good ones. And uh, thankfully surrounded by people that helped me learn from the times when I didn't make the right decision. And so that's all I would say uh, to kind of close it out, but thank you all very much for having me and and thank you all very much for what you do. Well, thank you, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Um, And I'll I'll speak for all of us. You know, we're we're thankful for your example. Um, I think you are setting a, a great example for, uh, men in the country, um, you know, from any walk of life, really. And like we talked about, a lot of these cultural issues start with us, um, you know, in our own families or young men looking to start families one day. Uh, so thanks for being a good example and uh, kind of using the voice and platform that you have for for good. Um, and I know that your series on on your YouTube channel, um, you know, about being a father and about being a man were like some of the best videos I've watched in a long time. So Absolutely. I appreciate the effort you put into those because I think they're going to do a lot of good. And uh, yeah, it's just been a pleasure to to learn from you and uh, to have you on. So thank you so much. And uh, thank you to your to your wife for being such a great support. And uh, congrats to all your kids uh, hitting those milestones this year. And uh, I hope the wedding uh, with your daughter is outstanding. No, thank you all very much. All right. Well, dads, enough talk. Let's get climbing. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.